I'm Mary Parker, and welcome to this episode of Eureka's Sounds of Science. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Elise Lewis, Principal Director of Toxicology for Charles River's Horsham, Pennsylvania site. For over 20 years at Charles River, Dr. Lewis has made drugs safer through her research on developmental, reproductive, and juvenile toxicology. Basically, she makes sure that the drugs we test are safe for pregnant people, babies, and young children, among others. She joins us to share her passion for her work and her experiences as a woman of color in the scientific community. Welcome, Elise. Well, thanks, Mary. Glad to be here. I'm so glad to have you. And I just think it's really interesting, like right off the bat, to be talking about developmental toxicology, because I just kind of imagine that the early stages of life could be some of the most vulnerable to a drug toxicity. Am I right about that? Absolutely. I mean, there's, you know, a lot that we can be exposed to over time. But, you know, when you think about a developing offspring, um, that we don't know truly what's happening from one moment to an, the, the next when they're being exposed mm-hmm. in utero. So we want to be able to, you know, be in the forefront of testing to make sure for those known agents or those things that um, they may be exposed to, that we can at least give a mother and her family, you know, some semblance of hope that, you know, they can safely take medicines during pregnancy or maybe during mm-hmm. lactation um, or during early childhood development that, you know, that they have the assurance that there's something there to keep them safe. Right. Yeah. So can we start with your background? Where did where'd you grow up and did you always dream about a career in science? So I am a native from Alabama, um, and I received my bachelor's and doctorate degree from the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa. Mm-hmm. And since I was in middle school, I wanted to be an obstetrician. That um, was mm-hmm. always a passion of mine. And, you know, I, I dreamed of being able to do it for the longest time. And, you know, once I completed my undergraduate degree, I realized that the hospital environment was just not for me. So I then took a detour. So, you know, having that backup plan is very important when you're going through a, a graduate program or thinking about higher education. So I diverged from my pursuit to be a medical professional and found a way to marry my interest in the medical field with a passion that I had for studying birth defects um, and making sure that, you know, those intentional versus unintentional exposures to drug products or chemicals could be, you know, minimized or averted altogether. So I think that that detour gave me the opportunity to touch more patients rather than just one patient at a time. That actually makes a lot of sense. A a drug researcher would theoretically have more effect on patients than an individual doctor, although obviously both are important. And it's funny you mentioned that you that you wanted to start as being a doctor. I've I've interviewed other people and they and they kind of had a similar story. Like they started with wanting to be a doctor, but then moved to research. And I think sometimes they didn't even know that was an option at first. They thought it was just doctor or nothing. Exactly. I mean, you yeah. when you go through your early academic programs, you know, they kind of help you to, you know, shape and mold you over time. And then they ask you, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? And, <laughs> um, you know, I, I come from a long line of teachers um, and, you know, those who are having an impact in early stage development and making sure that they're laying the foundations for those as they're, you know, going along their academic pursuit. And so that's really all I knew besides, you know, seeing doctors and lawyers and nurses and of course you know 
you know, people that were in athletics or sports and things. And, um, but I had a different interest. I mean, and it was something that, you know, when I told my eighth grade teacher that I wanted to be an OBGYN and she just kind of looked at me like, well, where'd you get that from? <laughs> and, and literally that is what I stuck with every year. And, you know, sometimes people's passions change over time, but I've always had a very strong interest in, you know, the medical community, healthcare, things of that sort. Yeah. That's just funny. You reminded me that when I was a kid, I used to tell people that I wanted to be a cosmologist and they would give me a look like, but you have terrible hair and no interest in makeup. And I'm like, no, (laughs) it's not a different thing. (laughs) It didn't work out either way. So that's okay. So speaking of teachers, who were some of your childhood heroes? I, you know, the top of my list, I'm always going to have to pay homage to my mother. Um, She was, you know, very, very active in my life, you know, not just as a teacher, but as my mother and making sure that, you know, my best interests were always at her forefront. Um, She was the one who kind of, you know, told me as I was, you know, kind of going through and making plans about what am I going to do and, you know, what do I, um, what do I want to be? And she was like, you're not going to be a starving artist because I had an interest also in music. Uh, (laughs) I played piano and clarinet and bass clarinet and contralto for, you know, quite a few years while I was in, you know, junior high through high school. And, you know, when I got into college and I said, well, maybe I could minor in music. And she just kind of looked at me and was like, yeah, absolutely (laughs) not. So, you know, I had to kind of modify my plans based on, you know, her wisdom. And, you know, it's like the wisdom of the mother is like none other where, you know, you don't see it at the time. Um, and you're like, you're just, you know, not allowing me to grow and develop the way that I want to. And now that I see some of the things that she helped me to restructure and to, you know, navigate a different path, I'm very blessed by the fact that she used her infinite wisdom and just guided me in the right direction. And, you know, I get my work ethic from my mother. I I watched her as she, you know, was educating young minds over time. And she was one of those teachers who stuck with the system for many years. She was a teacher for 42 years. But what I saw as I was growing up is that no child in her classroom nor in our community was ever left behind. She took the time to tutor after school. She took the time to grade every paper that she ever gave every student, never, you know, discarding any because of the time of the day. Um, Mm -hmm. He also made sure that, you know, on the weekends, she was active in community service or in her, her academic sorority. And during the summer when she was off, when most people would want to rest, she was actually tutoring students. And I get that passion for education from her. I get the work ethic from her because, you know, I I don't believe in leaving any stone unturned. And when Mm -hmm. it comes down to the work that we do each and every day, I apply that to my day job. And I also apply that to things that I do out in the community as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, that that's a definitely a good role model. I'm hard pressed to think of any job that works harder than teachers. Yes, yeah, absolutely. You know I mean? <laughs> a lot of us get to turn our turn our work selves off when we go home. Teachers are never off. They're always on. Always on. Always yeah. on. So what were some of the defining milestones in your academic career? Like what made you switch to toxicology specifically? So when I was, you know, going through my undergraduate program, I finished that fairly early. You know, most people are on the four or five year, you know, track. I think I finished within three, three and a half years, but that 
last semester of my undergraduate program, I took a toxicology course, a basic toxicology course. Mm -hmm. And as we were going through each organ system systematically, um, I gained a different respect for biological sciences. And it wasn't just like a standard anatomy course, and it wasn't a course that was related to, say, physiology. It truly talked about toxicology and, you know, unintentional exposures and what could actually happen from poisonings and, you know, just changes over time. And that piqued my interest a lot because at, to that point, you know, I, I was mentally going to medical school. And also during that time of when I was, you know, in those early stages as an undergraduate, the dean of the department for biological sciences kept, you know, trying to recruit me for graduate school. And I'm like, I'm going to medical school. <laughs> it's like, it's like, why are you trying to deter me from my path? And, you know, just having those conversations with him every semester and he's there to help guide me academically. And, you know, I was set in my, in my ways, I was going to medical school. And in that last semester, my mother actually ended up having to go to the hospital and she had been seen for some tightness in her chest and they gave her, you know, a, a, several doses of naproxen while she was in the emergency room. Mm -hmm. And when we got home, she actually started to go into anaphylactic shock mm -hmm. and we ended up having to go back to the emergency room. And the same doctor that had prescribed the medicine to her didn't remember that she had been there earlier. And to me, that was one of those pivotal moments where, you know, that environment is so fast paced that sometimes you cannot render the care that you truly need to make sure that you're paying full attention to your patients. And it mm -hmm. wasn't like a, you know, a huge bustling town, but it was, you know, their, the attention that they needed to pay just wasn't there. And I was like, I can't do this if this was, if this would be, you know, a day-to-day -day situation for me. I actually care too much, you know, about the patient that I would want to make sure that I understand everything that's happening. And, you know, from the moment we walked into the emergency room to the time that she had gotten seen, I mean, there's a lot of changes that could have been made. I mean, I could have been without my mother at that time, but mm -hmm. thank goodness for medical intervention. So I'm happy to be on the side of medical intervention at this point, because that, you know, that was probably the most defining thing for me to know that the hospital environment was not going to be for me. So at the same time, I was taking that basic toxicology course and realized that maybe this is something that I could do. And I can go back to the dean of the department and say, I think I've changed my mind. You were right. <laughs> I think I've changed my mind. So, you know, from the fact that he showed interest in me early on, you know, all the way from my, you know, sophomore stages as an undergraduate student to the point where he stuck with me, like he was, he was not giving up on the opportunity for me to go to graduate school and to also, you know, be considered as part of their future faculty fellows, mm -hmm. uh, which was one of their prestigious honors back at the time when I was going through the University of Alabama. Well, it sounds like that he was a real mentor to you. I was wondering if you had any other mentors early in your career, including after you graduated. Yes. Well, while I was in graduate school, um, there was a graduate student, well, a postdoc uh, that was, you know, part of my lab 
Uh, her name is Jane Rasco, and I am forever grateful for everything that she taught me from a toxicological research perspective. She taught me how to evaluate fetal skeletons and, you know, do all of the things that are necessary to make sure that, you know, we can truly assess offspring development over time. And mm -hmm. she taught me how to, you know, dose the animals and to identify the animals and help to record the data. And we remain the best of friends to this very day. Um, and I wouldn't be in this position right now if I didn't get an understanding of contract research from her as well, because she, you know, spent some time working in contract labs before she came back into the academic institutes to work on her PhD. So she was able to kind of lead and guide me in the right directions when it came down to a career path. Mm -hmm. I, is there any particular reason that you decided to go the contract research route um, as opposed to, you know, becoming a professor or working at any other type of company, or was it just the job that came up? Well, interestingly, you should ask that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so one of the things, you know, I, I um, had been talking to some mentees uh, earlier this week, and, you know, it's always the industry versus academia when, you mm -hmm. know, you're going through biological sciences. And most academicians are going to encourage you to stay in the academic environment because, you know, they're in need of researchers. They're in need of, you know, people at the bench top and people to teach and to shape the foundation of science. And, you know, mm -hmm. and I have a great respect for that. And um, certainly I had all the opportunities in the world while I was in as a graduate student being a minority fellow um teacher or, you know, to help train other lab instructors, to teach alongside some of the other professors, to take all of their office hours. So I was being shaped to be an academician. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I enjoyed that. I, I, you know, again, I get that from my mother and from my family and, you know, all the tireless academics that I've mm -hmm. known over the years. And it didn't bother me that, you know, maybe I was going to go into that, but, you know, doing having to apply for grants and, you know, doing the, <laughs> the yeah. basic, the woes of being an academic professor, research professor, you know, if I could do it on a liberal arts basis, I probably would have gone in that direction. So mm -hmm. when I was about to graduate with my doctorate degree, you know, I was needing to make some fundamental decisions because my mother had, you know, had a stroke while I was in graduate school. So I mm -hmm. needed to decide you know, how best to care for her, you know, did I need to stay in Alabama, you know, can I, can I branch out and go and do other things and maybe use the academic environment as like my backup plan, because I still had that interest. So I actually applied to teach at a junior college, because again, a lot of things were in ebb and flow at that time. Mm -hmm. And this is why you always have to have a backup plan. So <laughs> I went in and, you know, thinking that, okay, well, I've taught all of these labs. I've got a lot of recommendations. You know, I know the person that's the head of this department knows a lot of people that are at the university and they are communicating about me. So I go in, I thought I did fairly well on the, <laughs> during the interview. You know? And yeah. unfortunately I didn't get the job. Mm. So, and, but it probably was for the best at that time. The state of Alabama had a, a, a law written in about the junior colleges that you had to have a master's degree in order hmm. to work at a junior college. And I had a PhD instead of a master's degree. And I was like, what kind of nonsense <laughs> is this? How do, you, how do you tell somebody that has that just spent four or five years in a graduate program that they can't teach at a junior college? That's nuts. And, 
it, it literally was written into their, you know, their laws. And then after I, you know, kind of toiled over that, like, oh my gosh, now what am I going to do? Because I was thinking of staying home, you know, in that area with my mom. Mm-hmm. And my professor at the time, the head of my lab, Dr. Ron Hood, he introduced me to, you know, the contract research lab environment by introducing me, connecting me with his network. Um, and that was at a teratology society meeting at the time. They're now known as the Society for Birth Defects Research and Prevention. And I pretty much got interviewed on the spot and then got invited up to, I won't say that other contract labs thing, but I got invited <laughs> up to, you know, their facility to take a tour, do a presentation, and I accepted the job. And circa three years after that, you know, I had already joined Charles River at that point. Um, I got a phone call saying, hey, what do you think about this? This, you know, particular junior college has now circled back to say, hey, do you think she'd be interested in that job now? (laughs) That ship has sailed, buddy. (laughs) That ship has like passed. So it (laughs) I just found it fairly comical that, you know, you can work so hard and you can, you know, achieve to be the best that you could be, but there's always some type of roadblock, which is why it's very important for, you know, students coming out of their academic programs and trying to make life decisions as to what to do next. Mm -hmm. They need to have a backup plan. You know, don't put all your eggs in one basket and, you know, explore all of your options because I can at any given day, pick up the phone and call some of our local institutes here and, you know, do presentations for them. Or I've been a part of, you know, various career panels or, you know, had the opportunity to go back to my home institute to present on toxicology and reproductive toxicology as one of their guest speakers. So you can always parlay, you know, some of your other interests with your current role so that you don't miss out on those opportunities to educate young minds. Right. Yeah. And, you know, per your mom's wise counsel, it is harder to have a backup plan for music, for being a professional concert musician. Absolutely. It's it's just harder. (laughs) Or, you know, oh gosh, more, more power to them. I feel like it's harder to be a concert musician than it is to be a movie star these days. It's just rough out there. It is rough out there. Well, uh, speaking speaking of roadblocks, what kind of impediments, if any, have you had to face as a woman of color in the sciences? You know, I've been very blessed over the years, you know, my um, excluding my graduate years, I would say mm-hmm. I've been in this field for over 22 years now, and I have not personally encountered any issues. But the more and more that I hear other people's stories mm-hmm. and I then kind of put things into perspective to say that, you know, I have been one of few, I've been the only, I've been the first. Mm -hmm. I see what they, you know, I I see what the problem is, but the bigger part of the problem is that how do you get biomedical research in general, you know, Mm -hmm. down into the early academic, you know, stages to get people to stay in the STEM field, Mm -hmm. to recruit and to get them to stay. And, you know, there has been a lot of research that's been, you know, put out over the years that talk about role models. When people don't see, you know, a role model in someone else, you know, it's the where's the me too? Where's the someone who's like me that may have gone through the same thing that I've done? Everybody has a different story. Everybody has a different journey. 
but we may all end up in the same place. And, you know, it's very key for us to be able to go back in to those academic institutes to tell our story, to expose, you know, young minds or those individuals who are interested in a career in STEM or biomedical research or even in toxicology, that this is a path for you to follow. You don't always have to say that, you know, just because you love animals that I'm going to be a veterinarian. Well, you can take that love for animals and make sure that, you know, you're parlaying it into another career where mm -hmm. you can still work with animals. Um, you can go back in and, you know, start to teach people the importance of vaccine research or start to teach people the importance of some of the testing that we do. But when they don't see other people along that path, because I can tell you that the field of reproductive toxicology is a very unique field in and of itself. And then when you get into things like juvenile toxicology, very, very unique. You're not learning that in an academic environment. Mm. Uh, very few schools these days are actually teaching the basics of, you know, developmental toxicology, the way in which I was taught, you know, over 20 years ago. Well, I, I'll just say 20, over 20 years ago, I'm going to leave with that. <laughs> That's totally fine. <laughs> and, you know, it's how do you get them to have and acquire a genuine interest in this field, but once they get into it, who else is out there to support them, to uplift them, to empower them so that they can see that they're not in this environment by themselves? Yeah. You know, it's funny. It, we talk about how important it is for people to see those jobs because, like you said, you think maybe it's doctor or nothing. But the reality is that at every level of biomedical research, there's just all these different kinds of jobs that can take anybody from, you know, high school graduates up to PhD level and everything in between. And having having that exposure to all those different kinds of jobs is crucial for sure. Well, it is. And just, you know, to highlight uh, some of the barriers for women in science, not just for a woman in color, you know, mm -hmm. in science, uh, there's three stages. You know, this was published back in like 2014, three different stages to influence girls or women who are interested in STEM between childhood to mid-adulthood. And that early stage, like early childhood to adolescence, you know, they're more or less likely to move away from STEM because most people think that, you know, girls are not analytically minded, that, you know, mm -hmm. they enjoy more of the nurturing aspects of life. Uh, they're getting their influence from their, you know, their parents or their peers. You know, they're starting to set personal goals or values. You know, there is the gender stereotypes that go behind it. And, you know, how do you help to reshape a young mind? And then when they start to move into that emerging, you know, adulthood, you know, it's the lack of fit, you know, in that whatever environment it might be. Maybe it's in an academic lab while you're working on your master's or your Ph.D. or whatever higher degree you're working on. Um, they may be outnumbered by their male peers or they have fewer same sex role models or mentors than they have. And, mm -hmm. you know, they may get into STEM, but they're most likely to either completely leave it, abandon it altogether or leave prematurely before they had the time to cultivate, you know, the, um, you know, and develop the skills that they need to be successful on the job. And they're equally as qualified. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when you get to that early to mid adulthood, you know, there may be gender bias in the hiring or um, promotional practices, whatever, you know, organization or institute that they're working in. 
uh, bias in their, you know, scientific work, uh, because there is a such thing as unconscious bias that, you know, we mm -hmm. all have to be mindful of. And, you know, are they being inclusive in their, you know, their workplace environment? Because everybody deserves a seat at the table and we need to be able to listen openly to diverse ideas. And then there's the dynamic of the family and work balance. You know, mm -hmm. work-life balance is very big um, in, you know, for women. And then they may be undermined for retention, you know, overall. So it, it's a struggle for women in science in general. But then when I sit back and I think about, you know, women of color in science, well, they're lacking all of the role models that are necessary to continue to, you know, fill that pipeline so that, you know, I don't have to be the only one, the first one and one of few. Yeah. I mean, it, it's almost become a cliche, but it is so true. Representation matters and seeing yourself and the people that you want to become is, is important. So. Yeah. We took a short break and we're back. So picking up, what are some of your proudest achievements? That's a, you know, very good question. And, you know, I can point out many, but, you know, when I sit back and I think about it over time, mm -hmm. I had the opportunity during, you know, the height of COVID to be recognized during Black History Month, um, talking a little bit more about leaving a legacy. And I was recognized by Fox News as, you know, a, a scientist in the area who was leaving an impact you know, a living legacy is what it was called. And that was a great achievement. I would have never thought to, you know, that I would have made it that far at, you know, this point in my career. And I think that that was a great opportunity for me to have other people see me and my contributions to biomedical research. And that to me was one of those moments that I wish that my mother could have been there for. And mm -hmm. it, it would have been so important for her to see that all the work that she had invested in me throughout my you know, fundamental years, they were paying off and that others had the opportunity to see what I can achieve, you know, mm -hmm. and the legacy that I could lead um, just by, you know, having that moment in time of being recognized in that manner. And that was something that's just going to stick with me for a long time. I saw that interview. It was great. I'm actually going to share the link to it in the show notes. So if people want to check it out, you can find the link there. Um, and you've also been the president of a few scientific societies. Yes. So that's been one of those, you know, things that <laughs> has been a great opportunity for me to learn a little bit more about, you know, scientific organizations, how we're working in the nonprofit space, exposing trainees to cutting edge science and making sure that we're understanding a little bit more about the multidisciplinary work, you know, that we do across, say, birth defects research within the mm -hmm. industry. Also about what it means to empower women to be the scientists that they could be. And I, I think about those opportunities and having spent the time in the presidential line, because okay. it's not just one, you know, one year and you're done. You're actually being groomed to go from 
the vice president elect to the vice president to programming a meeting for, you know, a number of individuals to be able to send, you know, attend a couple of hundred individuals. And then you do the presidency and you help to shape the foundation of the organization or to continue to build upon what's already there. And then you go into the past president and then as if I wasn't a glutton for punishment already, you know, I went from one scientific society and that presidential chain to the president of another, you know, scientific society back to back. But now that I've done it, I've been able to learn a little bit more about strategic planning. I've had the opportunity to work with some amazing individuals across the industry and not just in my field of, you know, drug development, but other women in science who are local here in Philadelphia that are working at Drexel University or St. Joe's or, you know, Temple and other places that are trying to put out students that, you know, are interested in biomedical research or interested in other areas of STEM and empowering them again to uplift them, to show them, you know, things that they could possibly do in their career path. But talk about science and help them to grow as an individual as well. Like, how do you mentor up? How do you, you know, how do you ask for a promotion? How do you um, how do you write cutting edge research up in a journal? Those types of things. How do you even interview for a job? You know, and those are some of the basic things that yeah. we're getting the opportunity to teach people from, you know, the Association for Women in Science. And now that I've finished those roles as, you know, president and had those great opportunities, now I've moved on to, you know, moving towards the Association for Women in Science chapters and advisory group where I get to oversee multiple chapters and help them to put on programming that will be enriching for women in the area of STEM. Yeah, absolutely. Well, besides mentoring, what are some of the aspects of your job that get you really excited? Like, is there a particular aspect of toxicology that you think is just the coolest? Well, hands down, I'm going to tell my general toxicology friends that are out there <laughs> that reproductive, <laughs> reproductive and developmental toxicology and juvenile toxicology is by far one of the greatest fields that I could have, you know, imagined for a career for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I get to see a lot of different things that, you know, that help us to make sure that we're shaping the the drug development the right way, making sure that there are no more thalidomides on the market, mm-hmm. making sure that the appropriate medicines can be taken by women of childbearing condition or women who are pregnant or nursing mothers, or even helping to develop drugs for the pediatric population for those childhood diseases that are very specific in the pediatric population. So I get to see a lot of things from a developmental perspective. And, you know, it's not the same study each and every day. Mm-hmm. Because the consequences could be different no matter what category of drug you're working with or classification of drug you're working with. Some of them could be subtle effects. Some of them can have like profound, you know, toxicities. And we want to be able to put, be there to fill in the gaps to say, no, this should not proceed. Or yes, I think this is going to be safe. You've just accomplished so much in your career, but is there anything else that you hope to achieve or discover? Well, you know, I I truly believe that the best is yet to come. If I had to do a hashtag, <laughs> <laughs> hashtag my life, the best is yet to come. I don't feel that I've reached the, the pinnacle of my career. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to be known for leading, continuing to learn and leaving a legacy. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And while I was already recognized as a living legend, while I've already, you know, accomplished things early in my career that I never even thought were possible just because someone else believed in me, you know, that I am a living example of what a mentor or a sponsor could actually do. I want to be able to pave the way for others. And I, I think that that is the most important thing that I can do going forward is to be that sponsor for someone else, to help them to, again, see the possibilities, be exposed to them, experience the possibilities and help them to continue to grow in their careers. But if I had to, you know, just kind of pin it down, um, there's so many more things that I have and I want to do. But at the top of my list would be my three L's of leading, learning and leaving a legacy. That's awesome. Well, if you had to go back in time and choose any other job, what would you pick? Well, I think I'm in the perfect job for me right now. Um, I look at it as, you know, I had the opportunity to try the medical school approach, you know, and I, I learned even before I got through the application process that the hospital environment was not for me. But if I had to go back from an academic perspective, I always wanted to get my MD, PhD. But even if I did do that, mm-hmm. I probably would still be doing the same thing that I'm doing right now. That's amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining me and, and sharing your advice and your your career with our listeners. And uh, I hope that we see even more awesome things from you in the future, but no pressure, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like you just pressured me, Mary. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops, sorry. <laughs> well, thank you for this opportunity. This has you know, been a great conversation and I look forward to more opportunities to be able to share, you know, infinite wisdom with you one day. Absolutely. I would love that. Thank you. Alrighty. You take care.